on page what does it say? 978. Yeah, you can sit down. That's a good idea. Um, okay. Um, oops. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greed, and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA, and I'm excited to be with you on our third anniversary as a church. We have now been meeting together as a body for three years. So if you didn't know and uh, don't know why we're preparing food in the back, it's because we have a cookout to celebrate that immediately following the service. So we hope you can stick around for that. Um, And before we do, though, we're going to continue to worship God and we're going to start a new series today. So let me pray for us and we'll dive into a new series. Father God. Lord, I pray for you to be present in this moment and for your spirit to be filling us as a people. Lord, not just to be ones who are free from sin and then waiting for a future reality, but one that sees that life has come now and is offered in your spirit. And we have the ability to join your Holy Spirit and being formed into your image, of being given life and life to the full right now, right here in this place, in this time, in our lives, in our life stages, in our vocations, in our neighborhoods. Because Lord, when you fill us with life, it doesn't fail to spill out to others around us. For that reason, Um, And for many more, Lord, just simply because we are hungry for what you've called life and life to the full, I pray again that you would come and you would be showing us what it is to partner with you and the work of becoming formed into the image of true humanity, which is your son, Jesus. Lord, let your spirit do with this time what you will. And we are trust you and we're anticipating to see what you'll do with this. Uh, and what you'll do out of this. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those who know me know that I love movies, and amongst movies, uh, the favorite studio of mine, at least particularly for their first uh, 10 or so films, uh, is no competition. It is the Pixar uh, film company, and they create at least, you know, there's been some misses recently with some sing, uh, the sequel craziness. But regardless, be, outside of that, they just continually produce high-quality films. And even so, we're like, people always, you know, if I talk to them enough and we kind of talk about Pixar films enough, we get the point of like, okay, what's your favorite? And I find that like, 
picking amongst my children. And so I just kind of give tiers of Pixar films of like, well, these are certainly your A's, and then these are your like A minuses, and these um, are the sequels that need to go away. And, um, and then amongst those, though, one that I put in my top tier uh, that I found out recently is one that not everyone does put in their top tier, which I think is crazy, is the movie WALL-E. And WALL-E is about a robot that is cleaning up the earth uh, after humans basically in a post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, future dystopian world have trashed the world and taken off on a spaceship to basically hang out until these robots can clean it up and they can come and recolonize. And a lot of people just like don't like it apparently because uh, Wally is a robot and there's not a lot of talking in like the first half of the film. It's all kind of like through, uh, you know, creatively shown through action and through, uh, you know, nonverbal uh cues and everything like that, and apparently people just like want more quip, uh, witty, quippy dialogue, which is what I was just think something that unintelligent people say. And, um, <laughs> but either way, uh, the film then shows in the second half of the story uh, the humans, the people that left the world, and they are all riding on these armchairs and are just coasting through space, drinking all their meals, like, you know, everything is turned into liquid form, so they can just take it in a cup, and they become obese, and they just sit around floating, and they don't do anything. They don't participate in relationships or, or create culture. They're just sitting on these armchairs and, and waiting for the day to end or waiting for more entertainment to come stimulating. It's kind of a major, you know, commentary on where we find ourselves today. And as the movie progresses, one of uh, the, the spaceship that has the, all the people sends a, a robot to Earth and it finds a plant, it finds life. And that was the sign that's supposed to then take to the people and say, hey, now you can go and re-engage in the world as you know it. You can go recreate culture. You can recultivate the world. You can create all things as they were before and beauty and life and all these things. Um, and the problem is, is that when that comes to them, the people uh, had decided long before that they just wanted to continue to exist, continue to sit, continue to just take in passively. And so uh, there even is a point where the ship captain, who all of a sudden starts learning about the way that life was and learns about life and learns about culture and sees dancing and sees color and sees art and all of a sudden starts being reawakened to all the beauty that there is in this world or there was of their world. And then all of a sudden he's deciding to, no, I, I want to go back. And he starts saying, hey, he starts trying to convince others, hey, there's something to go back to. There's life to be had. And then at one point in the film is he's talking with one of the characters who's trying to dissuade him from going back to earth and reengaging with the difficult thing of, of, of cultivating life again. The, the character says to him, hey, no, we, need to, we don't go back because we need to survive. And he screams out, I don't want to survive. I want to live. And that quote hits me and resonates with me in this moment because it reminds me of, of where many of us are when it comes to our life in Christ. That many of us, the same problems that the humans were experiencing in Wally, not that we're all overweight, though apparently McDonald's has made us that as well, but re- beyond that, it's that we find ourselves holding on to this dim vision of just surviving in our life in Christ. Uh, of we come, we experience the fruit of the gospel, salvation from sin, we've been stepped out of death into life, but we don't step deeply or, or take all that it is to find that life in Christ in the here and now. 
what, what I'm talking about is Jesus, when he talks uh, of what he has come to give us in this world. All throughout the book of John, he talks that he has come to bring life. In fact, people are really uh, ticked about the way that he continues to say that he himself is bringing life. It almost gets him, well, it does get him crucified, but it, it kind of gets him like, uh, it almost gets him killed. Uh, yeah, it kind of does at the end of his life. I mean, it's constantly the religious rulers, all the people are saying, like, how can you say that? Only God can say what you're saying. But he says in John 3.16, the most famous verse of the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he came, uh, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, should not perish, but have eternal life. And, and then in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Anyone who comes to the father must come through me. And in John 10, 10, Jesus says, hey, the thief, the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus is getting at this idea that some of us like say, well, yeah, of course Jesus came to bring life. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Eternal life. Like, I mean, you know, we come, we're saved, and then someday in the sky and the great by and by after we die, we'll experience life and all that he has to offer, which is true. There is life coming for those of us who are in Christ, and it will be eternal, and it will be free from sin and brokenness and all the death and disease and, and pain and fear and anxiety and depression and the things that mark our world right now. But Jesus, when he comes in this world, he doesn't seem to be solely focused on some future reality. He seems to be very focused on the here and now. In fact, when he comes announcing his kingdom, he says... My kingdom is at hand, which doesn't necessarily jump off in our English, but in the original language, that was really crystal clear. He's saying, hey, everything that I'm talking about is here now. So the life that I come to bring, the, the life to the full, yes, in some ways won't be fully experienced in, in all of its fullness until my kingdom comes in its fullness. But make no, make, make no mistake, it's available to us now. And, and so we as a church wanted to step into a series of asking ourselves, okay, what does it look like the day after I become a Christian? And maybe you've become a Christian recently, maybe you became a Christian decades ago. But, but what does it look like from that day after as I continue to make my way through this world, am I simply just waiting for some future reality, waiting for eternal life and trying to like do some good deeds before I go? Or is there a way for us as a people, as a body, to step into the life and life to the full that God has called us? And if so, what does that look like? What have we been called to? How do we get it? And so we want to start a series in which we're calling practicing the way of Jesus. That, that Jesus has called us in his life and in his reality to stepping into a lifelong experience of coming to know, coming to grow, coming to move out our faith and our salvation deeper into our lives and then exploding out of our lives into the life of this world. And so this morning... The task I simply want to 
open up for us and show to us today is simply this call of what it looks like to learn Christ, as our text says, or grow in practicing the faith and growing into a life with Jesus. So if you have the text open in Ephesians 4, uh, if you don't, in the Black Bibles, it's 978 again is the page. I'm going to be referring to it. And it is chapter 4, starting in verse 17. And I want to ask this, what is this life that we have when we enter into Christ, and then how do we cultivate it? How do we grow it? How do we get it? Verse 17 says this, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So let me stop there and and first just lay out the sense that I I love how Paul plays out this uh, sense of of what we were called out of when we are stepped into life. We step out of this darkness of mind, or even later down in verse 22, he says, hey, that your manner of life, it was corrupt through deceitful desires. That all of us come into the faith as people who are broken and sinful with these deceitful desires. That sin itself is promising something it doesn't, it cannot deliver on. So many of us view life out in Christ of like, okay, I've come to like, you know, have faith. And again, I'm just kind of waiting for eternal life. And I know that that's better. And so in the meantime, I just kind of got to hang out and chill and give up all of the really good stuff in life to show how important Christ is, to show how much I'm really into this and, and to show how intense and how far I'm willing to go. So I'll, I'll give up all the things that truly bring joy and, and I'll hold on to Jesus who, you know, apparently will get joy later. It's a long-term investment and basically is what I'm going on for my life and my future. And the problem with that is it miscategorizes sin as something that actually brings life. And I say this all the time because I think it's just something I want to beat into my brain and beat into your own brains as we continue to live out this life together. That sin promises things that it does not deliver. It promises life. It promises that we will have freedom. And maybe it does for a glimmer of a second. Maybe there's some level of pleasure I experience by um, engaging in just any uh, form of sin, whether it be just, uh, you know, clicking off uh, and and, uh, finding myself running into drunkenness and into uh, just running after sexuality, running after all these things that just seem like they have all the joy to be given to them or given in them. But the fact is, is that you at some point and and still are, I know, wrestling with sin in your lives. And, And I would ask you, Does it continue to produce the same level of life time after time, year after year, day after day? Or does it continue to start diminishing returns and it starts to capture you? It starts to imprison you. It starts to demand that you give it everything and it stops giving anything back in return. There's a movie, American Gangster, probably about a decade back, um, that uh, the stars Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington plays a true story of one of the most heinous gangsters that we've seen in... uh, the state side, I guess, of life of just like just a truly, you know, cruel and uh, just maniacal person who, who gained all the fame that, and the, all the uh, riches and all the lifestyle that gangsters enjoy. And Denzel Washington said, hey, I want to make the movie, but I want to make it only on one condition. 
that we don't continue to make films that show all the glories and the riches that gangsters have, but don't show the reality of the basements with people strung out and sitting there uh, just with broken lives and children crying because they're the products of relationships where they just showed up and they didn't know what to do with them, so they put them in the corner while they continue to disconnect from life and reality through things that will anesthetize them from pain and also anesthetize them from being able to interact in the world. I want to show all the people breathing down his back at all times, the way that he has to constantly be watching his back. I want to show that life as pressing into sin doesn't lead to joy. It leads to pain. It leads to heartache. It leads to brokenness. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says, hey, there's a deceitful desire. It's, it's going to come. It's going to promise life. It has no life to give. Well, on the other hand, that God's law, God's bringing us into how he designed us to be. It's not arbitrary. It's not him just thinking like, oh, what are some things I can do to like see if people really can prove how much they love me? Rather, it's, it's ways that he's showing us how he designed us and showing us what really leads to life. That's why when he says, hey, I want you to give up bitterness, it's because you know that as you've held on to bitterness in your life, it continues to be a sense of you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It continues to hollow out your soul. It continues to burn out you inside. If you want to stoke the flames of bitterness, you can, but you won't get to be the master of the flame. It continues to burn large in your life, and I'm imagining it does for many of you too now who are still struggling to forgive those who have hurt you, those who have done legitimately wrong things to you. But Jesus is going to say, hey, no, I, I created you to be one who actually gives that up and gives away the, the right to hold on to the anger that you have. Or, or generosity. We talk about it as the church that, hey, generosity is not something we want from you. It's something we want for you because we've, I preached before, there's all sorts of social sciences that show that studies where people who are more generous are able to, uh, they're sick less. They're able to uh, regulate their body temperature better. They're able to uh, step into life with less anxiety, less fear, that there is something, a way that God made us, that he just made us to give of ourselves and not clutch onto things with all of our hopes and desires, to put it into something as small as resources that can be taken from us in a second. Because all the commands that we've walked through, we walked through in the Sermon on the Mount just as a church this past year, all the things that Jesus walks through in the New Testament that the writers of the New Testament are going to put out to us are lining us up to the way that God made us. You can use your phone to spread butter on toast, but it's not going to work well for long. It wasn't designed to do that. And so life looks like giving up these deceitful desires. Then it also looks like in verse 24 where it says this. Now let's go back to verse 21 to get the setup. Or verse 20. He says, But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There are a few concepts in our culture that are less sexy than righteousness and holiness. Let's put that out on the bat, or just right off the bat, let's address that. But if you really look at what it is to put on the new self, to become a person that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, someone who's filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, one who 
lives like Christ lived. I mean, going back to those fruits of the Spirit, I mean, one that is filled with peace. I'm tired of holding on to anxiety in my life. I'm tired of continually worrying about what's going to happen next or or what's going to come down the pipeline for me. And Jesus says, hey, I've actually designed you to live in such an intimacy with God as your father that you are able to let go of anxiety. That's righteousness and holiness. One who's in so deep of a relationship with our father that we are able to fully trust him. Trust him with our lives. Trust him with that, hey, uh, what you say is actually what I think is good for me. That, that what you say that you're going to provide for me, and I believe that is actually going to happen. So I let go of trying to hold my world together with my own two hands, with my own resources. I mean, that's putting on, uh, putting on the, the new life. It also looks like loving our enemies. I mean, don't we long to be people like Jesus that's just able to look at those who are persecuting him and yet have love and compassion and blessing for them. And I know there's a part of us that says, like, no, it's not safe. But there's also a part of us that says, yes, that's where we were meant to be. That's what we were called to. That's what we were designed to do is to spread life by bringing life to those who want to bring death to us. There's so much as I just look at the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. As, as I look at Jesus and his intimacy with the Father, that he regularly spends these times in prayer with God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I spend long t- periods of prayer with God, and it's just work for me. It's just this sense of like I'm constantly losing focus. I'm constantly trying to come back, and I'm trying to be like, I, God, I know that you're supposed to be like what I desire and what I, what I want most, but the fact is, is I'm just not used to this. But you see Jesus, and he seems to have this effortless, joyful intimacy with God our Father and just spills out of him to become this life-giving presence. I mean, that's why children run up to him. That's why prostitutes find their way, like just coming to him and saying there's something life-giving about this man. That's why sinners and tax collectors and religious people, every peop- all the people that are surrounding him are drawn to this man because he has life in him. And there's part of him that just says, I want to be formed into that. I want to put on the reality that he has called us into. And so if that's the life that he's called us into, then what do we do to cultivate that? What do we do to get that? Because we can all sit here and be like, okay, on some level, you're right. Like, I want to live into those things, but I don't have any capacity or know what to do to get there. And and just really quickly, let me make an important distinction from this text. And going back to verse 17, where he says, hey, now I say and testify the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then skipping down to 22, he says, hey, when you put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on your new self, created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. I just want to point out that he says two things that before we get much further in this text, we just have to say that those who are called to life, all of us who have been called to life in Christ, if you are a Christian, you don't come in, as I said before, as somebody who deserves life. You don't come in here as someone who is a good boy or a good girl who has worked hard and God looks at you and says like, okay, fine, finally somebody who like did it. Like I made it hard and you continued to pursue me and pursue the things I wanted and I want to congratulate you. He says, no, you all come in as those who are, have formerly been in deceitful desires, have formerly been in running into the things of this world. And let's face it, many of us are still very much so in process of stepping out of the brokenness of the life that we've stepped out of when we were called into Christ. But when you step into the gospel, the gospel which says that 
that Jesus takes on all of your sin and he gives you all of his resume. Meaning that for those who come into relationship with God through Jesus, that those who come into having the cross take on their sin and give them his resume, it, it, it means this, and I say this from time to time, and I read this somewhere, and I just thought this was so scandalous when I first read it, but, but it's very true. To have Jesus' resume, to put your sin on the cross and receive his righteousness, means that you can read the Gospels, and wherever it says Jesus, whenever it says the Christ, you can put your own name in there, and that's how God views you. He views you as the one who has been faithful to him, who has gone to the cross for his enemies, who has done miracles in his name, who has communed with him, that everything that is true about Jesus is true about you if you are in Christ. And that is a true reality of the gospel. But a second and very important reality that we also need to recognize is that you come in and you are seen as perfect and flawless in Christ in the eyes of God. We also come in the reality that we are still very much so broken and marred by sin. And that's true even if you've had some really powerful, miraculous conversion story where it was able to take something from you right away. And I have a friend in the city who, I mean, he talks about when he came to Christ, he was I mean, you hear about these stories, but you're like, does, any, does this ever really happen to someone? He literally was eating out of a dumpster. Not because he was poor, he was making six figures. Because all of his money was promised before he got it to drugs. And so he had to find food out of the trash so that he could use all of his remaining money to basically pay for his habits. And he said he was literally in a dumpster where he has a vision of Christ. And Christ comes to him and lets him know, hey, I've come to remake you. I've come to be God. I've come to take all of your sin and all of your brokenness and give you all my righteousness. And it moves in him in such a powerful way that he gets out of that dumpster. He stops all of his habits of, drug, uh, of drugs and he never suffers withdrawal. He never backslides and he never enters into that life again, which is amazing if you know all the physiological things like going on in that situation. But regardless of his story and his scenario, Though God miraculously saved him from some of the parts of his lifestyle, he, like you and I, still very much so have the necessity of then working out our salvation and working out ways that the new life, the old life is still in us and the new life has not come out of us. I mean, does anyone find themselves really encouraged that the Apostle Paul, who, you know, writes three quarters of the New Testament, you know, creates the church in like all the cities, basically, you know, the church spreads dominantly in part through him. I mean, he is an apostle of Christ, and he talks about in Romans about how he's still struggling with the old self within him, that there is an old sinful part of his humanity that just doesn't quite want to come out. It's true of him. It's true of you and I. And so here's the false reality that we sometimes then start to live into in that point. We say, well, yeah, okay, I, I'm saved by grace and the gospel, and I still have these things that are broken to me, and, and truth is I'm probably just going to carry these into the grave, which I don't know, maybe. Maybe there's parts of your sin, and yes, there's parts of your sinfulness that you'll never be fully redeemed in this life. But we can make a lot of headway. We can learn Christ and grow into what it is to be made into his image, which ultimately what we just said, like what is life? It's looking like Jesus. It's living like Jesus lived. It's doing what he did. It's having all of the relationship he had with the Father. 
And as I said, I want to be formed in that, and I'm guessing a lot of you do too. And so let's just look then briefly as we set up this series. What does it look like then to live into that? Again, verse 20 says, hey, but that's not how you learned Christ. Uh, What he's talking about here when you learn Christ is not just the sense of like, okay, I learned the gospel, though that's true. But it's also a sense of like, I I learn over time what it means to put on the new self, to take off the old self. It means that you enter into a process of what's been historically called sanctification, the growing in Christ-likeness, or what other people have called spiritual formation, or possibly you could call becoming a disciple. Discipleship is overwhelmingly the term used to describe Christians in, in the New Testament. In fact, the word Christian, you only get that three times in the entirety of the New Testament. It's mainly used as like a negative term from outsiders looking at, out into, the, into the church. But what you do get is 268 times when Jesus refers to those who come after him, he refers to disciples. And the problem is, is we kind of like don't have a strong sense of what a disciple is. I mean, we just don't use that word a ton. Um, and so I think an English word that gets at it is the concept of apprentice. Someone who is apprenticing under Jesus to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. That was the original goals of disciples, the disciples who were under Jesus. In fact, discipleship was not original to Jesus. There were other rabbis before Jesus that had disciples. Rabbi Hillel, a popular rabbi before him, had about 70 disciples. In fact, it wasn't even really, uh, original to Judaism. There was discipleship all over the Mediterranean. In fact, it probably originates in Greece, where you see Plato as a disciple of Socrates. And so discipleship was all over the, the, that first century world. And we just want to kind of get at the sense of like when you were a disciple of someone, you had three main goals. And they're the same three goals we have today. And I just want to break, them out what, break down what they meant for them and what they meant for us. Three goals you have as a disciple is to be with your rabbi, to be like your rabbi, and to do what your rabbi did. And so you would want to, of course, first be with your rabbi. And that's because when you were a disciple following a rabbi, class was not Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and only Friday if you didn't stay out late on Thursday and couldn't get someone to sign in the attendance sheet for you. But it was all the time, 24-7. You ate with your rabbi. You, when your rabbi called it a night, you called it a night too. You slept next to them. You were trying to be around them at all times so that you could be just in their presence. There was an ancient, uh, near ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern blessing that said, may the dust of your rabbi be upon you. Because it was a desert location. There were not a lot of roads. And so when you walked and traveled, the dust of who you were walking closely to would kick up behind you. And they said, hey, it was a blessing to be so close to a rabbi that his dust of his feet would be kicked up upon you because it meant that you were being formed into his image. Because that was the sense. You don't want to just be with him to be with him, but you want to become like him. You want to start picking up his mannerisms. You want to figure out how he relates, how he uh, logically thinks through of all the uh, ways to teach uh, the scriptures and to teach the Torah, teach the ways of of stepping into what it is to know Christ. In fact, I I saw this in a modern context. I saw uh, one day when we had, uh, not at this congregation of Soma, but before this was launched and we were at the Midtown congregation, we had a pastor from another church come and preach, and he brought with him uh, a pastoral assistant. And the pastoral assistant um, 
uh, well, I guess I was watching the, the pastor preach uh, uh, one Sunday. I like see out of the corner of my eye, the pastoral assistant there, and he's like moving his, like looking up at that pastor. And he's like moving his arms and he's like making facial expressions and everything. And I have this moment of like, this is like Harry Potter. Like he's like hexing this man. And, uh, but then as I look closer, I see like, no, he's, he's trying to like, he's making like the same motion that the guy makes when he makes it. And he like does the same facial expression. He's like literally like taking it on. And I thought to myself, what would be really cool is he, if he was actually the one controlling the one on stage. And it was like this hexing experience. Um, I don't think it was. But either way, what this is was a modern moment of him trying to take in the facial expressions, take in the motions, trying to take in everything that this person was. And then also, you want to be with your rabbi, you want to become like your rabbi, and you want to do what your rabbi did. That the goal of an apprentice is not just to learn a lot about your rabbi, but it's to do what they did. That Jesus, when he sends out his disciples, when he sends out the 72, he sends them out to teach and to cast out demons, which is what he'd been doing up to that point. He looks at them and says, hey, you're ready. I think you've got this, so now you go forward. And so just taking that into our modern context really quickly, what does that look like for us? To become a Christian, to step into what it is to be Christ, is yes, to believe in the gospel, to believe that you are fully saved in faith, and there's nothing you can do to earn that. And then it's also then to because you are forgiven, not for your forgiveness, but from your forgiveness, start working out and working in the life of Christ into you. And so you take time to learn to be with Jesus, which is tough because it's like we're not actually like Jesus is not physically walking the world in this time. And so it's like more of a metaphor to us now. But the truth is, is like what it means, and we'll teach actually more about these. We're going to do a sermon on each one of these, be with, come like, and do what, do what Jesus did. But to Be with Jesus in a nutshell is to learn to commune with his Holy Spirit and to be in regular unity to him. That through your day, through your life, you live in such a way that you live in the presence before the face of God. John 15, 4 through 11 says like this. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, hey, abide in me and I in you. Uh, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I in the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and you and it will be done for you. Jesus says, hey, what's, what it's like to be with me, to abide in me, he uses this metaphor of a branch connected to a vine, connected to a plant. He's like, hey, I want you to have a constant, consistent acknowledgement of your connection and your, my presence before you. Dallas Willard, who read, uh, writes a lot on just being formed in the image of Jesus and, and how we do it over time, writes this. He says, this is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may, be, uh, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on lesser things than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Dallas Willard says, hey, this takes practice. 
of over time learning to be with Jesus. And it takes practices like prayer and silence and solitude and reading scripture and Sabbathing, taking time a day of your week regularly just to slow down and to be in the presence of God. I mean, I, I don't know about you, my day, once it gets going, it gets moving and it's hard just to kind of reawaken myself that I am before God, that he's my father, that we are working in this world, we are walking through life together. And Dallas Willard and these people are saying, hey, it's a time over years to practice the presence of being in the presence of God, of being with him. And so that's what it is to be with Jesus and then to become like Jesus. Because it's not just the goal of being uh, with him, merely for being with him, but also that he would begin to form himself into us. Uh, Again, we said this is spiritual formation because here's the reality. We're all being formed into something. There's no neutral in this life. We're being formed by our culture. We're being formed by our closest acquaintances. We're being formed by technology. We're being formed constantly in this world. The question is, what are you being formed into, and what is its trajectory if you take it out 5, 10, 15, 25, 35 years? For me, again, I want to be someone who is formed so much into the image of Jesus. I want to be so formed in being with him that over the course of my life, I start to look more like him. And it's not just like I'm able to do these external things. Like I actually have a heart that desires to love other people, that desires to bear one another's burdens, that desires to give of myself sacrificially because, man, I've been so marked and shaped by one who gives of himself so sacrificially to me. It just doesn't make sense to live any other way. And so how do we do that? Well, that's what we want to spend a series doing is we want to give a vision for this and then we just want to lay out all these practices in different ways. We want to take probably over the next year, different times, uh, we're going to go back and forth between teaching on different series and coming back just to put practices before us that we can all practice together in community. Because that's what this is. It is a lifetime of practice these these things together as a people that we begin to be shaped into them. And then, of course, we don't just be with him and be like him, but we do what he did. The modern world has a major issue with just knowledge, thinking like that education and more information can solve all problems. Education and information is fantastic, but some of us have read enough books and enough sermons and need to apply what we've read to our lives. You can hear sermons as entertainment right now. I mean, you can stream 10 podcasts a week, and I mean, all, I mean, they're fantastic. I mean, like TED Talks, except they're about Jesus. I mean, it's beautiful stuff. And you can take them in and never actually have them flow out of your life. The goal of being with Jesus, of becoming like Jesus, is to do what he did, to come near to the broken and those who are far from them, to make disciples to live simply, to seek justice and reconciliation, to be a part of the miraculous. These are not things we're going to do tomorrow, but things that over a course of time, over a course of years, over a course of working towards them and practicing towards them, we seek to see the fruit of these develop into our lives. And so just a couple things here briefly. Um, before we, we close here with communion, I just want to kind of put all before you. Again, that's the point of this series, is to kind of put forward these practices. But I want to just say uh, really quickly, I think you've got to notice, um, you can't just do these as a hobby. 
you can't just follow after Jesus as like an aside to your life. Like I'm into following after Jesus and I'm also into road biking. And like one of them, you know, like you have to live all of your life towards forming yourself into Jesus. And that doesn't mean you have to quit your job and become a pastor or, be, or start a nonprofit to like feed the homeless. I mean, those are all awesome things, but you can be in your job, in your life stage, in your position that you are right now. And the main focus of your life is forming yourself into the image of Jesus. That you awake daily and say, hey, what does it look like for me, a CPA? What does it look like for me, a nurse practitioner? What does it look like for me, a electrician? What does it look like for me to be formed into the image of Jesus here in this place? And again, we want to kind of walk through these different practices, walk through these things, um, because ultimately the call of Jesus is the call to become a disciple. Again, we already mentioned the the disparity of the word uh, Christian versus the word disciple. And you see constantly throughout the New Testament, there's these crowds and there's disciples. And when you hear disciples, don't think just the 12. I mean, Jesus had the 12, but he also probably, you know, he had hundreds of disciples, men and women following after him. And when you see that distinction between the crowds and the disciples, it's meant to kind of give you that choice too. Which are you to be a part of? Are you the crowds just kind of following Jesus? The 76% of people in the Gallup poll that claim to be Christian? Or are you trying to form yourself into the image of Jesus? Are you stepping into the 7 to 9% that are actually pursuing after what it is to know him? And I'd also just say, as I've been trying to make the point, but I want to make just really clearly, this takes practice. And practice is not trying harder. It's training. And so uh, you can, uh, John Ortberg, who's a pastor in California, uh, puts out this metaphor when he talks about um, training versus trying. He says, hey, if you want to run a marathon, and some of you have ran a marathon, and that's awesome. Uh, I have not. Uh, I've ran long distances, not quite that long. But still, if I wanted to do a marathon today, uh, I couldn't. And it's not that I wouldn't really want to, or, or maybe I wouldn't try really hard, but if I just go out and just be like, all right, 26.2 miles, so I can put that sticker on my car tomorrow, and I go out for it, I just am, I'm going to, you know, maybe go, I mean, I've ran a little, so I can probably hit maybe, I don't know, eight, nine, ten miles, and then I die. And and, you know, I just fall over and bleed lung fluid out. And, uh, and that's fine, you know. But if I actually want to run a marathon, how do I do it? I start by running what I can run. And so if you're, like, never run before, maybe you run a mile. And you just call it a day. You're like, all right, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. And then the next day you come in and you run a mile and a little bit more. And you do it again. And then after you've done it a couple times and you step up to two miles. And then up to four. And then up to eight. And then you slowly move up. And you do what is hard. What will always be hard. But over time, over training, it will become in your capacity to do. And here's the reality about the Christian life. So many of us step into it and just try harder. Try to give up porn addiction harder. You try to forgive people harder. You try to give up old ways of life, old ways of thinking. Try just to love your enemies and just try harder. Here's the thing. You don't have the capacity when you first come into this life. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. Yes, he can do miraculous things in you, but that's what it would be. It would be a miracle. And to do it time after time consistently, it takes a training of yourself to grow into someone who it will always be hard, but has the capacity to do the things that Christ has 
lived out before us and said, hey, this is putting on, taking off the old and putting on the new self. It is a lifetime of practicing these things together, training together, learning what these habits are and putting them into our lives in community so that we might be shaped in the image of Jesus. And I'll say this as our last thing. You don't initiate this process. All of us who come into life with God have come because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to know him, to see him, to worship him, to treasure him as beautiful. In fact, even the effort, even what he gives us to grow in him comes from him. It's always working out of God. It's always coming out of him. I mean, the analogy I heard someone talk about this week was he said like when he was younger and he used to drive when he was like three with his dad and he would come in to tell his mom, hey, I drove the car. And of course, his dad would look at his mom and say, hey, wasn't really driving. I had my hands on the wheel the whole time. And there's a part of us that thinks about growing into the image of Jesus and just thinks like, man, I don't have the capacity to do that. And you're right, you don't. You need to be filled with the Spirit that is given to us because Jesus has come and reconciled us to God, has taken away our sin and filled us with his righteousness and then filled us with his Spirit and now given us the ability to step into something that's hard growing in the image of Jesus. It doesn't mean that because, oh, I'm just got to be filled with the Spirit. I just sit back and wait for it to happen. I just sit back and wait for it to be effortless. It will always be a sense of you moving forward in your effort. At the end of the day, though, even that effort comes from the Spirit. It is, seems like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, and maybe I am, but it is the paradox of living and growing into Christ-likeness. It is stepping forward in the effort that I have. The gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And then as I do that, being filled with the Spirit to actually be grown in the image of Jesus. And so I invite you here now to come and take, forward the element, or take part of the elements of communion. If you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus has taken your sin and given you his righteousness and given you his spirit, then you can come and experience nearness to him and a fresh experience of his spirit now in the act of communion. That when we come forward, we take of the elements of, that remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And remind us that our Savior has died so that we can live. That he has then been raised to new life. And just like he's raised to new life, we also are raised in his same spirit. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us. And has the ability to move us and shape us into his image. And so if that's you, if you're a Christian, if you are trusting Christ to have moved in you and to shape you, then I ask you again to come forward in a moment, tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. I'll be gluten-free station up here, right and your left. If that's not you, if you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. All are invited into this, uh, this act of discipleship, but we do ask that you come in not as someone who's going to do it by trying harder on your own effort, but you come as someone who's been redeemed by Jesus and filled with the Spirit. And that takes believing in him for all of your salvation, all of your righteousness, all of what he's been given you. And so we'd ask if you believe that, then, hey, you're a part of the family. Come and talk to us, and then come and take communion. But if you don't, feel free to sit in your chair. There's no shamefulness for being there. You can continue to explore this, continue to see what it's like and what we're calling you to. That is a lifetime of learning Christ, of putting him on and experiencing life now that develops in us and pushes forward into eternity. Let's pray. 
Father God. Lord, again, I pray for you to be doing the work in us. And as you do that, be filling us as a community with the desire to strive in training, in growth, in practices to take time this week to pray, to be with you, to take in scripture, to be formed by your words, to eventually step out into patterns of of solitude and silence, of Sabbath, of worshiping you for an entire day and being present to you, uh, Lord, and enjoying this world that you've given. Uh, Lord, that you'd be moving out into us to be making disciples, to be pushing us forward in this world, to be living out of our identity. And Lord, that all comes from, again, that moment of you saving us, redeeming us, and filling us with your spirit, and then uh, teaching us and shepherding us and, and, and forming us into your image. And so, Lord, let us be a people, um, Lord, that look at that together in this season and not just look at it, but actually live it out, that we seek to be with you, to become like you, and to do what you did, Lord, for the life that you have promised to have and the life of the world. Lord, we can't get the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, we be a community that embodies that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.